In our study through the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen the book focus on really three major characters. At first, the book focused on Samuel, the prophet. And then we shifted our focus uh, to King Saul. And now we are shifting our focus to David. You could really divide the book up into three kind of rough sections. The first, middle, and final, third. And if that would be true, we are moving into the final third of First Samuel. This week we really begin zooming in and focusing more on David, that shepherd from nowhere who has been selected by the Lord to be the next king of Israel. So far, David has been mostly an incredible, invincible, faithful hero of the faith. But we're going to start seeing more of David's humanity. The rest of the book really reads like one long chase scene, like the ones you see in the movies. Now, I like a good chase scene, but perhaps you've noticed sometimes it's like, all right, You've already crashed the car four times. You've already gone through like six counties. You've got to run out of gas sometime, right? Like Sometimes they can seem to go on too long. Well, we may be tempted to think that in 1 Samuel. Why would we have so many chapters, really starting last chapter in chapter 20, all the way through chapter 31, the end of the book, is really David is on, he's on the run, And if we're reading our Bibles carefully, we might be asking, why so many chapters devoted to David's life on the run? Why so many? Well, I would encourage you that when you're reading the Scriptures to let the Bible tell you what is important. Don't come to the Scriptures with an idea in your mind already about what's important. Let the Scripture speak. Because judging by the amount of space that's given to David's life... There must be something, or David's life on the run, rather. There must be something that's really important about this part of his life. But we have some other clues besides length that tell us that that this is important. (coughs) Excuse me. There are seven psalms that are explicitly tied to the events of these chapters, including two that are connected to the text tonight. Now we should remember when we think about the Psalms that the Psalms are the worship book for the church. They tell us, they teach us how we can worship and praise God honestly in the midst of the struggles of our lives. One of the reasons that for millions and millions of Christians, the Psalms are one of the first place in this one of the first places in the scriptures that resonates with us because they have so much raw emotion. You don't have to have it all cleaned up when you come to the Psalms. They teach us how to praise God honestly in the midst of lives that are hard and full of struggles, and we need those lessons. This was not just the practice of the prophets or the great kings of old, but of our Lord Jesus Christ. He learned from the Psalms how to express faith, even in the midst of suffering. Did you know that his most famous statement, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were words that were originally spoken by David, and they were most likely written while he was on the run from Saul. So not only can we 
learn from David's fugitive years. And not only can they teach us a great deal about (coughs) how to praise God in the midst of our messy lives, but I believe that they also point us ahead to the history-shaking, suffering work of Jesus Christ. We have two psalms that were written out of the events of 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Those were Psalm 34, as I read a portion of earlier, and Psalm chapter 56. And when these psalms are read alongside the events of this chapter, they give us a more complete picture of what's going on. A, A picture of David, who, when the circumstances of his life became too overwhelming, lost his faith and gave in to the insanity of fear. In spite of David's sin, we will see tonight that God is willing to deliver him and not only to restore his faith, but to build in its place a new, stronger faith. So let me go ahead, even before I read the text tonight, share with you what what I consider to be the main idea, the main message of this passage tonight. The main idea we'll see from the scriptures is this. The Lord will provide for his people, even in the most desperate of situations, and even when they don't deserve it. The Lord will provide for his people, even in the most desperate situations, even when they don't deserve it. Let's read the entirety of 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Verse 8, Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Then David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ashik, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ashik said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart. He was much afraid of Ashik, the king of Gath. 
So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ashik said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We come to it tonight humbly, submitting ourselves to you, and ask that you would reveal to us what is true. And that especially you would reveal your character and the person of Jesus Christ in these words. So we submit to you now. I pray, Father, that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. No man needs to hear from another man, but we need to hear from you. So speak to us and let your word bear fruit in our lives, we plead and we pray. We ask this in the name of Christ, the word who died for us. Amen. Let's first consider David's short-term memory. You'll remember that ever since David was anointed to be the next king of Israel, his quiet shepherd's life, you know, except for the lions and bears and tigers, oh my, was disrupted, right? It was significantly disrupted, which is exactly what all of God's people, even today, should expect when we decide to follow Christ. You and I may not be facing giants or running from a murderous king with a very bad spear-throwing habit, but we are called to take up our crosses, not once, not Sundays, but daily, which means that it is impossible for a Christian to expect a life of ease and comfort. Though David's public career began on a high note, namely defeating the giant Goliath, and then marrying the king's daughter, and then rescuing Israel from the hand of the Philistines a couple times. Ever since then, he has been on the run, and it's really starting to get to him. Last chapter, a few weeks ago, we saw mighty David moving from nervous to afraid, and then we saw his tearful goodbye with his friend Jonathan. And in our text tonight, I believe if I've interpreted this correctly, that David's fear turns to sinful desperation and panic. Now, I must confess that I have struggled to try to sort some of this out because when you read the Psalms that he wrote on this, you see these incredible expressions of faith. But when you read the story, you see all of these expressions of fear and distrust. So I have interpreted this, that those expressions of faith written in the Psalms were after these events, and he's looking back, considering what should have been true for his heart. I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but we will trust the Lord, will we not? So David is on the run, and he has, remember, he's running from Saul, and he makes his way to Nob, which is only two miles away from Saul's hometown. And apparently, he did not pack his ramen, so he needs some food. He also did not pack his sword, so he needs a sword. He needs food and supplies. So he makes his way to the priestly compound, and he initiates contact with the priest there, Ahimelech. And the text says that immediately the priest is suspicious of David. Apparently, it was well known that Saul hated David and was trying to kill him. 
And so it would make sense that if David shows up by himself, that he would be suspicious. The, the priest says, why are you alone? And then once again, just like in chapter 20, David, who is overwhelmed with fear, resorts to lying. David concocts a dubious story that he's on a secret mission for King Saul. Once again, I don't want to hear the Bible is boring, right? We've got secret missions and double agents and murder and adultery and everything that the spy novels and the romance novels, not everything, but you, you, uh, I, uh, anyways, the Bible is not boring, right? And so, and he, he's saying that it's a secret and an urgent message, so much so that he didn't even have time to take any food or any weapons, right? So, okay, just consider how, first of all, how desperate David must have been to resort to such what I think is a pitiful story, right? One commentator that I like to read, he joked that, that here David was really on thin ground. He said that David sounds like a plumber that you hire, and then he's like, hey, can I borrow your pipe wrenches, right? It's, uh, it's, not, it's not striking a note of confidence, the only bread that the priest has on hand here is the consecrated bread, the holy bread, which is identified for us as the bread of the presence, which, among other things, is reserved only for the priest to eat. Now, I'm not sure why. I tried to figure it out, but I did not find, I did not come to a good answer here. I don't know why it, it didn't seem to bother Ahimelech that David wasn't a priest. I don't want to over-spiritualize this, so I'm not going to push it too far. But he was concerned that David and his men, he was concerned that they'd be ceremonial clean. Uh, he neglected the priest part and was really concerned about the cleanliness part. Namely, that they had not had sexual relations recently. Okay, just, I forgot to include this in my notes. But the, the key thing here is not that sexual relations are bad at all. The Bible is quite explicit about how wonderful they are. And that if you are married, you should be active in this. This is referring to the discharge of fluid. Which in the Old Testament is often, almost always linked with death. And so it would make a person unclean. So that's what's, that's what's going on there. And so David assured them that they were because they were out on a military mission. And so the priest handed over five loaves of the showbread for David and for his men to eat. I read one person who said, like, when you think of loaves, right, I think of the little, you know, like a loaf. Well, one, one commentator noted that these loaves of bread were made with about three and a half pounds of flour each, right? So we're talking loaves of bread, right? my kind of bread, with extra gluten, right? <laughs> Big, like, holy bread, holy, there ain't no holy quinoa, right? You never see that. I'm sorry, honey, you don't, okay. I like, I like quinoa. <laughs> I may need somebody to bring me some dinner tonight. <laughs> what, did, what am I doing? Okay, so, so David was given the five loaves of bread, and he and his men are, they have food to eat. The text stops here, and in verse 7, it, it gives us this, this comment about doeg, Right? The guy, he just sounds like trouble. He's like lurking in the shadows, kind of like listening to what's going on. And that is true. Doeg was an Edomite, which if you're good with your history, is Edom, Edom, Edom was a long-standing enemy of Israel. 
And yet, this guy was a high-ranking official in Saul's cabinet. He overhears this whole exchange, and we find out later in chapter 22 that he promptly reports all this to King Saul, and he actually eventually comes back and slaughters all the priests, all the families, including the men, women, children, and livestock. This is not a good guy, right? So the text notes that he's there listening. But back to David. David was thankful for the bread, but he also needed a weapon, right? Uh, if you're on a secret mission, you've got to have a weapon. Also, he was probably afraid of Saul. And so he asked the priest if he had a spear or sword on hand. Uh, it's not a request that I get often, um, though in this part of the country, I feel like I should maybe rethink my weapons policy. But the only weapon here, the only weapon that was there was Goliath's sword which David himself had used to kill the murderous giant. David is relieved to hear this news, and he gladly takes it before continuing on his way to the next town in our story, which is the Philistine town of Gath. Okay, let's pause and let's try to start making some sense of all this. When you're reading Old Testament narrative, especially, you've got, or when you're reading narrative in the scriptures, you've got to slow down and think about what this would be like. You've got to slow down and imagine what would it be like to have the most powerful man in the country chasing me down trying to kill me. I have no idea what that would be like. I can't imagine what that would feel like, but that's what David's reality was like. And so, what do we make of his behavior? Well, he was afraid. He had a very good reason to be afraid. But does that mean that he should have behaved the way that he did? There are some who try to justify all of David's actions in this text. I'm I'm not one of them. They say, well, perhaps he was trying to protect Ahimelech by giving him plausible deniability or that he was practicing spycraft or that the ends justify the means. Well, I can at least say with confidence the text does not tell us. It does not explicitly tell us what to make of David or even Ahimelech's actions about giving the bread. However, we should note that the text is simply reporting David's actions, not recommending them, and not necessarily condemning them. However, I don't think that we can let David off the hook. Nowhere in this text do we see David calling out to the Lord. Nowhere. Nowhere do we hear him expressing confidence in the Lord's deliverance. Therefore, I believe that David's circumstances had overwhelmed him so much so that he forgot about the Lord. Uh, You've heard me say this many times. He didn't forget that God was there. He didn't forget that God existed. He forgot that God makes promises, that he will actually keep them. He forgot that all the promises of God are actually true on his Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock. He functionally forgot the Lord. And David resorts to the same type of foolish tactics that you and I resort to when our minds are overwhelmed by fear. You can call it anxiety. You can call it a panic attack. You can call it anxiousness. Whatever you like. Worry. It's fear. When we don't turn to the Lord in our troubles, we have to do something. We have to do something. And if you don't turn to the Lord, the only other option available to you is worldly devices. And so that's what David does. David fell back into his, what is becoming a pattern, an emerging pattern of sin. He lied. 
Friends, lies are always, 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 always an indication that we're not trusting the Lord. There's, they're a symptom of short-term spiritual memories in which we have forgotten the past deliverances of the Lord and just presume that, well, I, he can't do it this time. He's not smart enough. He's not good enough. He's not wise enough. He doesn't love me enough. I know so much about what's going to happen that I'm going to make the decision about what to do. This same David, who was so utterly convinced that God was able to deliver, stood before Goliath without armor. Nothing but a sling and a stone. He, he said, he literally said, hey, I've seen God deliver from a lion and from a bear. Is he not going to deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine? Yeah, that logic is not present here. Surely, if the Lord can deliver from the hand of the Philistine, can he not also deliver from the hand of King Saul? In fact, shouldn't the very sight of Goliath's sword have reminded David of the time that he refused to wear any armor because he had the Spirit? Yet now we see David resorting to the same types of protection that Saul and Goliath depended on. And David's circumstances had overwhelmed him and he had forgotten the Lord. And as I mentioned earlier, this lie had disastrous effects. You see, you and I lie because we feel like we need to manipulate the present because we presume to know the future. David may, I think he probably was actually trying to protect Ahimelech by giving him plausible deniability, but it didn't work because the entire village was slaughtered. Wouldn't it have been better if David had trusted the Lord if he had trusted the Lord to provide by some other means, we don't know how that would have played out. It could have gone badly, but is the Lord still not worthy to be trusted? A.W. Pink made this comment. He said, Though ingenious falsehoods may seem to promote present security, they always ensure future disgrace. That's what lies do. A few days or a few weeks later, when David is looking back on this event, when he's writing the Psalms, he has a totally different perspective. Writing from the safety of a cave, he saw things differently. He saw, even with the deliverance of the Lord, that the Lord will always, 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 always protect and deliver those who trust in him. Psalm 34 says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, at Nob, David chose to sin. And his sin led to disaster. He chose to protect himself with a lie. And in doing so, endangered the lives of others and placed his trust in the weapons of the flesh. In chapter 22, he actually says that he holds himself responsible for the slaughter of those at Nob. If only he had obeyed, perhaps things would have been different. Psalm 56, the other psalm that he wrote around this time, is a time where he reflects on the importance of obedience, even in the midst of difficulty. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you've delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I might walk before God in the light of life. 
Friends, if I could just pause here and encourage you that when your life seems overwhelming or even mundane and you and your circumstances seem to be too great for you and they seem to be closing in on you, just obey. Trust and obey. Obey the Lord. You and I make really bad gods. Trust me, I've tried. So let's focus on our responsibility of obedience and let's leave the acts of salvation to God. Let's let God do the godding. But I don't want us to miss how the Lord worked in the midst of David's failure. Isn't that what the Lord does? He gives good things to wicked people. Praise God. We'll come back to this later, but isn't it marvelous how the Lord still provided for David? We don't want David's sin to distract us entirely from God's merciful provision. That even in the midst of sin and confusion, we see a God who is still willing to provide for his people. Now you may have been, if you had time to reflect on this, you might be tempted, like I was, to to think, if David's forgetting the Lord, and if he's acting so sinfully, then why does God give him bread? I mean, if David is sinning, why does God give him bread? To which I say, hold on, let's wait just a minute. If God only gave bread to those who deserved it, we would all be skeletons. What have you done in your life to deserve one single morsel of food? I was reflecting on this today. I I, I don't know if I've ever reflected on this very much. What have you done to deserve food? I mean, you and I live with an abundance of food that has more variety than the human mind can fathom. And even though we may be in the habit of saying grace or asking God to bless this saturated fat to the nourishment of our bodies, right? I mean, do we really sieve our food with hearts of thanksgiving? Our waistline may give us away on this one. But I really don't think that this is a side point to this text. In fact, this is the whole point of this holy bread, the the bread of the presence, right? Perhaps you remember how this was established. It was established with the temple where the priest would bake 12 loaves, massive loaves probably, of bread, and they would place them in the temple. And they, they were called the bread of presence to remind the people that God is present and he provides for his people. That's why it's bread and not rocks, right? The bread reminded them that God will feed his people. This is really fun to reflect on. God has a long history of miraculous bread provision. Think, just think about this for a moment. Most memorably, he's a God who causes bread to fall from the sky, right? You remember manna? God wanted his people to constantly be reminded that he is the one who feeds them. Now, it's very obvious, like smack you over the head obvious in Exodus and Leviticus, but in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when the people were getting ready to enter into the promised land, the land that was flowing with milk and honey and presumably glutinous bread, he wanted to remind them that they were still dependent upon the Lord. You see, it's not just when we're in trouble that we're tempted to forget God. Perhaps more so when we're comfortable and safe. 
God was concerned that his people would forget who gave them their bread. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. In other words, why do you have food? It's not because you're smart. It's not because you have a job. It's not because you work hard or have a good education or or work diligently. You have food purely because of the mercy of God. It's the only reason. We live in a land of abundance that we no longer marvel that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We no longer marvel that God provides food our daily bread. Because here's the deal. God does not owe rebels a single carbohydrate. Not a single one. And think of all that you and I have enjoyed. It is only due to his mercy that God provides bread to wicked sinners like Israel and like David and like me. Here in the midst of David's panicked sinning spree, we see God still providing bread. And what's really interesting is that this this is not just any bread. This was bread from the temple. This was holy bread. It was technically, since God, if you understand the theology of what's going on here, this is technically bread from heaven. Which is why... We should remember that the Lord God loves providing miraculous bread for his people. It clicked for me for the first time today. Perhaps this is why Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread. This is also why, more importantly, why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, I don't know your circumstances tonight. But I'm sure of this, you can trust the Lord to provide for you. The God of mercy, if he's willing to provide your daily bread, and if he's willing to provide the bread of life for you, then you can trust him. So turn to him, believe in him, and be saved. But we must keep moving. We move now to David's mess, verses 10 through 15. David's mess only gets worse. In verses 10 through 15, we see him fleeing to Gath, the Philistine city, which highlights for us how desperate he must have been, right? The man who killed Goliath, by the way, where's Goliath from? Gath, right? Just think about this. The man that killed Goliath from Gath shows up in Gath with Goliath's sword strapped to his belt, right? You may also remember that David took 200 Philistine foreskins. I wonder if any of those wives were standing in the streets as David goes strolling down the palisade, right? I mean, once again, we don't see David stopping to pray. We don't see him stopping to seek guidance from the Lord. So I don't know to, I don't know if we should interpret this as shrewd or just desperate or really, really stupid. I don't know. But either way, David is quickly recognized in verse 11. Ironically, he's recognized as king of the land. And oh, how true that was. 
Verse 12 says that in this text, David was much afraid. And so we again see him deploy the desperate tactic of deceit. The text says that David, the man after God's own heart, changed his behavior to act like a madman. He made marks on the door and he let his spittle run down his beard. Now, I'm not entirely sure what to make of all of this. The text, again, does not commend or condemn David's trickery. But I would imagine that any time that your plan involves acting like a madman and slobbering all over your beard, that you probably might be out of the will of God. I'm not sure. I suppose it's possible. Um, but either, either way, we can at least say that the Lord saves in a variety of ways, can we not? But here we have the future king of Israel, the Lord's anointed, the mighty warrior who defeated Goliath in such a bind that he is drooling over himself. One British scholar put it like this, the man who stood calmly before Goliath because he was possessed by faith now acts like a maniac because he's possessed with fear. It seems to me that in the Lord's sovereign providence, he allowed David to enjoy the fruit of his foolish plan before he delivered him. And oh, what a stark contrast this is for us. We have between the, man, the plans of man and the plans of the Lord. When you and I play God, dear friends, we may end up in a plan that involves us drooling all over ourselves to escape. How much better is the way of the Lord? Do you see how far David's sin has brought him? David has become like Saul. He's forgotten the Lord. He's trusting in the sword and spear rather than the Lord. He's paralyzed with fear. And now he's even pictured like a manic, which is exactly what Saul was. And David was called in to play music to calm him. You see, David has become Saul. Friends, sin will always bring shame. Nevertheless, is it not God's amazing mercy that he rescues David anyway? Brother and sister, can we rejoice together that we have a God who does not give us what we deserve? Can we rejoice together that we have a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love? Can we exalt him together? But in the few minutes remaining, I would like to draw your attention finally to the Lord's provision. To do so, let's turn to the New Testament and try to wrap all of this up. Start flipping to Luke chapter 6. If you're a good student of the New Testament, perhaps you recognize that Jesus quoted this incident in all of the synoptic gospels. And he uses it to make a point about himself. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus has another run-in with the Pharisees. Let's start reading in chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, Jesus' disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, 
The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I do not have the time to exposit for you all the implications and meaning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, but let us content ourselves at least to see this. While the Pharisees wanted to get into a debate with Jesus about the interpretation of the law and about Sabbath keeping, Jesus would not have it. Instead, he accused them of not understanding the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, will we face that same charge? Did you know before tonight how this text pointed to Christ? He then cited David's bread scheme back in Nob. He wasn't interested in getting to a bait about interpreting the law. Instead, Jesus wanted them to look past the law to the fulfillment of the law. More specifically, Jesus was saying that he was doing what David had done. He's saying that he is like David. That he's comparing himself to David. In Jesus, he says, something greater than the temple has come, and someone greater than David has come. Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? We are learning that not only is God willing to provide sinners like David, and sinners like you and me are daily bread, but he's willing to provide sinners with Jesus, the bread of life. You see, you and I have a great need, and our greatest need is not food for our bellies, and it's not even deliverance from our circumstances. It's not even a better marriage. It's not even a stronger walk. Our greatest need is for Christ, the bread of life, the God who provided manna in the wilderness, and bread in abundance in Canaan, and bread for the 5,000. He has also provided the bread of life, and those who come to him shall never hunger again. Just as David received provision from the sacred bread from the tabernacle, we may receive Jesus, the true bread, which meets our greatest need as sinners. Jesus states it most explicitly in John chapter 6 when he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper by eating bread, which symbolizes the body of Christ. Do you see how all this fits together? God has heard the cries of his people, not for more leeks, not for more onions, not for more meat, even though he, he responds to all those remarkably. But he has heard the cries of his people, desperately enslaved, not just to Pharaoh, not just in Babylon, but to sin. And even though we don't deserve it, he has met our greatest and deepest need in Jesus Christ. And if that's true, can you not trust him in all of your circumstances? Could we not stand up, each one of us, one at a time, and express our anxieties and our concerns and our fears and our deepest sins and our darkest, darkest secrets? And would Jesus not say, I've got it covered? Sin, I've paid for. Anxiety, don't need it. I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you live forever. 
I believe that's what David came to see in the cave later. And why he said in Psalm chapter 34, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I hope that describes your faith. Fear the Lord. Trust him, all you his people. And remember the logic of Romans 8. If he did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, will he not with him also freely give us all things? If he gave us Jesus, the bread of life, if he cares about the sparrow that falls, he sees you and he knows you. Psalm chapter 56, I believe, is where David said, Are not all my tears stored up in your bottle? Are they not written in your book? The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, knows your sorrows. And you can trust him. Run to him and be safe. Let's close in prayer. Father, we confess together that we have so often failed to run to you, choosing instead to run to food, to medicine, to TV, to social media, to friends, anywhere but you. Help us to see, help us to taste that you're good and that the man who trusts and seeks refuge in you will be blessed. Magnify yourself in this word. Let it reverberate in our lives in the coming weeks and months and all throughout eternity. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Save a business meeting. Go in peace.